Our passage this morning is found in Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. It can be found on page 641 in the Bibles in the pews. Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth, and put it around your waist, and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise. Go to the Euphrates and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen." You would please join me as we seek the Lord's help to understand uh, his word this morning. Father God, we have confessed that we need you each and every day, and we need you again in this moment to teach us your will, to show us the beauty of you in the scriptures, to show us our sin. So as we open your word, we pray that by your spirit you would instruct us, that you would guide us, and that you would mold us and shape us into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Do you know what it's like to hold on for dear life? Have you ever been in a situation where your survival required you to hang on? If not, you're in good company. I don't have a grand story about how I had to hang on for dear life. I've never been, and I don't desire to be, in such a precarious scenario. And while I'm sure there are plenty of thrilling stories about survivors who held on, I am convinced that the monkeys of southern China may actually be the ones to take the cake. They must do it every single day. Now, for those of you who are not steeped or at all interested in animal trivia, these particular monkeys live in the trees that stretch out from the tops of cliffs hundreds of feet in the air. These trees are their only source of food in the area, and so these monkeys have no choice but to live there. And as if the height was not enough, the ground below is compiled of jagged rocks. A misstep here or a slip up there will certainly end in death. Now for the adult monkeys, traversing this landscape is not really all that difficult. These are agile climbers. They are built for such conditions. The babies are the ones who have it the hardest. There is no nursery where the mama monkeys can drop off their kids when they go gather food. In fact, leaving the baby by itself is entirely out of the question. 
an unattended baby would either wander off the cliff's edge to its death or fall victim to the snakes and other prey that are just waiting for an easy meal. The only choice for these babies for their safety and survival is clinging to mama. And since mama needs all four limbs to move about the trees, these babies will not be cradled, they will not be supported. From birth, baby monkeys hold fast to their mothers with a death-like grip. They have no choice. It takes all the strength that their little bodies can muster to cling to their mothers as they move from tree to tree. And what a great picture for us this morning as we read the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Our text this morning shows us how us, God's people, are in a way expected to live like these baby monkeys. This word is a call for God's people to repent of our unwillingness to cling to our covenant Lord. It is a call that they have embraced arrogant independence to their own peril and folly. And the truth is, if we are not careful, we can easily stumble in the same way. The spirit of our day is one of independence and self-autonomy. And sadly, this has even been embraced and sometimes celebrated in the community of the redeemed. And so it is therefore good for us to hear the Lord's word of reminder and warning. As his creatures, we have been created to depend upon him. It is to our benefit and to his glory that we cling to our God and our Savior. So the Lord made you and I to depend upon him, so hold fast to the Lord. Again, the Lord made you to depend upon him, so hold fast to the Lord. Now, as you may have noticed from the reading, this section is a little bit unusual. Jeremiah is not as much preaching verbally as he is acting. The word he eventually does preach doesn't come until the final few verses. The scholars call this a symbolic action, which serves to illustrate or support Jeremiah's message. It would provide a visual connection to what the people were ready and prepared to hear from the Lord. So to help us make sense of Jeremiah's action and message, we're going to look at how first the Lord depicts Israel's fate. Then we will see how the Lord details Israel's folly. And then finally, we will see how the Lord directs Israel's faith. That's the Lord depicts Israel's fate, the Lord details Israel's folly, and the Lord directs Israel's faith. First, we start with how the Lord depicts the fate of Israel. This is the purpose for Jeremiah's symbolic action. God is using it to demonstrate what is going to happen to his people. It tangibly and visually aids the message that comes in the last three verses. Now, there is some debate among scholars as to whether or not Jeremiah actually did what it says occurred. Some will say this was merely a vision that he had, and he did what the Lord commanded in the vision, but not in real time, and he then took that to the people. That's fair. The the reader can liken this then to Isaiah's vision in in Isaiah 6. What takes place, though, would be no less meaningful or true. Now, the reason for doubt is because many think the Euphrates is too far for that distance. It is about 250 miles away from Jerusalem. So if we count that, Jeremiah would have had to go 1,000 miles, that's four times, 
to have done this, this act, this deed. On foot, mind you. But others will say that maybe the translation of Euphrates is better to be taken literally, meaning Parath, which was actually a settlement to the east of Benjamin, not that far, but had similar conditions to the wet and rocky Euphrates. Now, while it ultimately does not make a great difference if Jeremiah did or didn't do it, I do think in some way he actually did this task. He is quick to follow the Lord's commands as they are revealed. Whether he went to the Euphrates or this territory, I'm not sure. But we also know that elsewhere in Jeremiah's ministries, he did things like this, symbolic actions. He did a handful of other things that would demonstrate the message that he was about to make to the people of God. So the question for us then is, why this action? What does it symbolize? What does it mean? And thankfully, the Lord explains it for us in verse 9. He says in verse 9, Even so, I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Simply put, the fate of the loincloth is the fate of Judah. Removal and ruin. If you look back at verse 4, he tells Jeremiah to take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So we see that Judah is going to be hidden from the land. They will be driven away from the temple, away from David's throne, away from the land that God had gave them so long ago. Now for Jeremiah and Judah and for all Israel, this is devastating. This is a terrible word. And we can miss this today so far removed from when it was spoken. And this message Jeremiah would repeat often in his ministries, in his ministry many times through tears. It is why he would be called the weeping prophet. The Lord is not simply moving his people or allowing them to experience a little bit of hardship. No, he is actually fulfilling his covenant promise. He is telling them they're going to suffer the consequences of breaking covenant, of forgetting their Lord, of refusing to hold fast to their covenant Lord. And this is why I actually think Jeremiah performed this act. Whether he's going the 250 miles or maybe just the handful of miles, the people of God would not have missed the prophet Jeremiah leaving the city for a time, being gone for a time, coming back, staying, leaving again, being gone, and then coming back. It would graphically foreshadow the heartbreaking fate that was awaiting Judah and all of God's people in exile. But if that weren't enough, Judah's time away will not only be time away, it is going to bring about their ruin. This is not a vacation or a retreat. This is exile. It is meant to accomplish a purpose. Look at what Judah's fate will be in verse 7. At the very end, the loincloth was spoiled, good for nothing. Literally, it's not at all useful. That's how the Hebrew translate it. Think about this. The people of God called to bear his presence in the land would be completely ruined. God's prized possession would become spoiled, a rotten treasure. The privilege and blessing of being God's people would be a distant memory. This message from the Lord is a weighty and depressing message. And no wonder Jeremiah is therefore called the weeping prophet. 
But how does this picture of Judah's fate help us today? Of what benefit is such a warning to those of us who are united to God through Christ? Yes, we need not fear or anticipate exile if we fail to cling to the Lord. That punishment was specific for God's people under the Old Covenant. However, Hebrews 12 clearly tells us that even under the New Covenant, we can expect the Lord's discipline. God will not always sit idly by as we as people attempt to live our lives void of his strength, void of his presence, void of confessing our need for him. As a good and faithful father, he will discipline, he will chastise those he loves. So our fate might not be exile, but God's fatherly discipline in hopes to draw us back to himself. But maybe even more tangible is this idea of being useless. It stands as a very real possibility for us. Josh just read from John chapter 15 where Christ told his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. The question is, do we actually believe that? I think if we're honest, we think we can do a lot in our own strength. Even good and right and true things. But the reality is, without doing them in dependence upon God, without doing them in a confession of, I need thee every hour, they will turn out to be good for nothing, spoiled, useless. Parenting void of dependence upon the Lord is useless. Ministry, even a sermon, without a posture of dependence upon the Lord is good for nothing. Serving in our own strength is simply doing a nice thing. We need the Lord in all that we do. There is not a square inch of our lives where we can tell him, I got this. It is his spirit working in and through us that makes our life and service to him fruitful. So Jesus just told his disciples in John 15. So we see that the Lord has depicted Israel's fate. It's removal, it's ruin. And then we see also in this picture that the Lord is going to detail Israel's folly. God is not arbitrarily punishing his people. Like a good lawyer, I know we have some in our midst here, he has a growing case against Judah and all of Israel. He calls them evil, specifically this evil people in verse 10. And these are harsh and shocking words they would have offended Judah to his face. And what makes God call his people evil? The end of verse 9 tells us it's because of the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. Pride is Judah's Achilles heel. It is the weakness that will ultimately lead to his downfall. And this shouldn't come as a shock to us, Because the story of God's people in the Old Testament is one of God continuing to humble them, continuing to remove them of their pride. From the very beginning, God knew that his people are bent towards pride, self-exaltation, self-reliance. And he even gave them a gracious reminder at the very beginning of where they started. In Deuteronomy 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number, than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest. 
And again in Deuteronomy 9, he says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The people of God's possession brought nothing to the table. They were redeemed by his grace and they remained daily dependent upon his grace. Now, humanly speaking, Judah did have lots of reason for pride. David, the greatest king, was from the tribe of Judah. The hope of all of Israel was tied to the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem housed the temple where the glory of the Lord resided. Judah had a fairly good and strong resume, and he knew it. And this led his heart to swell with pride. And this pride, according to the Lord, manifested itself in three ways. We'll just look at them briefly. And the truth is, for us, we are just as prone to these struggles with pride. First, we see pride does not listen. The Lord says, this evil people who refuse to hear my words. Like a rebellious child, Judah would not heed the Lord's words of instruction. In arrogance, he turned a deaf ear to the voice of the Lord through his prophets, through his law, through his word. No amount of warning could cause him to listen. The words of the covenant were not words of life for the people of the Lord. The commandments and laws that were expected to enlighten and revive, they were just testaments of days gone by. The people of God here had better things to do than to listen to their covenant Lord speak. There were things more important. There were things more desirable. There were things more valuable. And how many times do we have a very similar approach and attitude towards our covenant Lord? How often does our pride push us to ignore the life-giving words found in Scripture? I am sure we can all recall many times when listening to the voice of the Lord would have likely spared us from great heartache and frustration. But this is not just an individual you and I problem. And in fact, Jeremiah is preaching to the entire southern kingdom. Collectively, as the people of God, these folks have refused to listen. And sadly, at times, the people of God today are still as prone to this kind of pride. We have seen denominations and churches blatantly ignore or counter what God has said truthfully, adamantly about life, about sin, about sexuality, the list goes on. So I pray that the Lord would instead lead us, his people, to humbly and gladly hear his words. But pride doesn't just not listen. Pride also thinks it knows best. The Lord says, after they refuse to listen, who stubbornly follow their own heart. Now, having a soon-to-be two-year-old in our house, I have a perfectly daily illustration of this. Ellie is slowly realizing that she actually has a choice of whether or not she can follow her parents or not. And too often, with a sly grin, that's unfortunately cute, she follows what it is that she wants to do. And too often, it leads to tears, to scrapes, to both. Pride thinks that it is the measure of truth and wisdom and instruction. It values itself over and above all else. Judah's pride was that his wisdom 
had been what established him in the land. His strength had gotten him to this position. His way was best. And how many times do we hear people around us quoting that ever so popular mantra, listen to your heart. It is the age-old proverb that you know best. But according to the Bible, this is the worst advice you could possibly give somebody. Jeremiah, in two chapters later, in chapter 17, he's going to tell us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Our culture is a mess because it is led by the pride and the deceitfulness of the heart. It is being led by lies. It is in desperate need of healing, but lacking the ability to perceive it. But before we judge our culture too quickly, we also need to look in the mirror. Our stubborn hearts pull us in a similar direction. When we should be led by the Spirit, we instead seek to lead ourselves. When we should know what we should do, we stubbornly do what we want to do. So in humility, let us listen to our Lord speak, but then also let us humbly follow him where he leads us. And third, we see that pride ultimately feeds idolatry. The Lord says that these people, these evil people, have gone after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And this is ultimately pride's end game. Upon rejecting God's word and demanding its own way, pride looks for worship elsewhere. And if it cannot find it, it will continue seeking it everywhere and anywhere. And God's people in the Old Testament, we find, turned out to do all sorts of abominable practices in the name of their pride. They wanted God to serve them instead of them serving God. And when he refused, they abandoned him and looked elsewhere. And what they found was hardship, disaster, and ultimately their exile. And again, we live in a world that is high on self-worship. It is serving and bowing down to whatever promises the greatest happiness, the greatest prosperity, and the greatest pleasure. And like Judah, this pride is being exposed for the folly that it is. And if we are not careful, we can drink it up as well. We will forget that God has promised repeatedly in his word to oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. So where does your pride like to rear its ugly head? Where is it wreaking havoc on your relationship with God, your relationship with others? Pride is folly. It will destroy. It will draw you away from depending upon the Lord. We need to battle against it daily. Put it to death. Put on instead humility knowing that God gives abundant grace to the humble. So the Lord depicts Israel's fate. We see that the Lord details Israel's folly. And then finally, we see that the Lord declares Israel's foundation. Simply, the Lord says that he himself is the foundation for Israel. Judah will, is, and will always, always be dependent upon his covenant Lord. Now, our human nature squirms a little bit at this notion. We don't like to think of ourselves as dependent upon anyone. And as myself, a Northeastern United States born and bred, 
individual, it's especially strong. Philadelphia is where we wrote the Declaration of Independence. We love independence. We drink it. We eat it. We soak in it. I think it's in the water. But the reality is the people of God, us today, we are not independent. And we never will be. We were never intended to be. That's what the linen loincloth is a picture of. A loincloth needs a waist to wrap itself around. It depends upon a waist. God's people, like that loincloth, need him. We sang it. We depend upon him for everything. He is our creator, our savior, our father, our teacher. I could keep going, but we would be here till tomorrow. Judah, unfortunately, sought its identity outside of God. He thought dependence was only needed to get into the land. And then, like a physically developing child, he would eventually outgrow his need for the Lord. Now, in addition to lack of sleep, having a newborn in the house again is teaching a tangible lesson in dependence. Margot is right now in that blessed state of not knowing anything other than her need for Bethany and myself. She needs us when she's hungry, in pain, tired, or in desperate need of deliverance from her overly affectionate big sister. And in her need and in her dependence, she cries out to her parents. And this is a beautiful picture of how we should see ourselves before the Lord. Am I this dependent as I stand here in a pulpit this morning? Am I this dependent in my other ministry's responsibilities, in my responsibilities as a father, as a husband? Am I quick to cry out to the one whom I depend on? Is our church marked by its dependence upon the Lord? When people see us, do they look at us and say, that is a church that depends upon the Lord each and every day. I pray it is. I hope it is. Because there is and there never will be a stage in our spiritual maturity as individuals, as a church, that will mimic our physical maturity. We will never mature beyond our need for our covenant Lord. He has made us as a dependent and needy people. We are weak. He is strong. We are foolish. He is wise. Judah needed to be reminded of who he was before the Lord. And we would be well served to hear that reminder for ourselves. But Judah also needed to be reminded of his purpose. He was to bring glory to the Lord. The Lord says, they're supposed to cling to me that they might be for me, a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. This mimics the words of Isaiah in chapter 43 when he says, My chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Judah depended upon the Lord in order to make the Lord known. This is why the Lord brought him out of Egypt and into the promised land. The nations would see this group of people and they would see the power and the glory of the Lord on display in their midst. They would see a nation with a God who loves them and graciously pours out blessing upon blessing on his people. But Judah took this idea and flipped it on its head, hoping instead to make a name for himself. And a loincloth that does not cling 
is thrown away. It has failed to serve its intended purpose. There's nothing left for it to do. And we today are given that same calling by the redemption and our union with Christ. Peter offers similar words in chapter 2, verse 9 of his first letter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is our purpose. It is why God has called you and I to himself. It is the answer to why we are here, both as individuals and as a church. So what are you living for? What is your purpose? Is your identity, your purpose in your job? Is it in your family? Is it in your money, your studies? There's a whole litany of things that we put our identity and our purpose into. Or is it in God who calls you to depend upon himself so that you might bring him glory? As a church, again, where is our identity and our purpose found? Is it in being a nice place? Is it in simply doing ministry? No, may it firmly be found in our identity as the redeemed people of God, daily declaring our need for him. And I pray that we would see ourselves as existing only to make his glory known. This world is desperately seeking what can only be found in the Lord. And too often, we're right there with them. Our families, our friends, our neighbors, our communities need to see God himself as our foundation, as our identity. They need to see us holding fast to him. And this is because this is the example that was set for us by none other than Jesus Christ. True Israel, our elder brother, We see in the Gospels that moment by moment of each and every day, he lived a life utterly dependent upon his Father. It is not wrong to say that Jesus was the loincloth that clung perfectly to the Lord. Just listen to a few descriptions from the Gospels of how Jesus lived. Mark 1, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. John 12, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. John 14, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. John 15, we just read it, as just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Luke 22 in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And even in his death, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus Christ is faithful and true Israel. There was no hint of pride in Jesus Christ. There was not a moment where he did not depend fully and solely upon his Father. And because of that, he perfectly fulfilled each and every part of the law. He succeeded in every point where Israel failed. And in doing so, he fulfilled God's purpose of acquiring a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Listen to Paul's familiar words in Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
This is our foundation. This is where we find our identity and our purpose in Jesus Christ alone. It's why we're called to unite ourselves to him by faith. So let us look to and fully rely upon him. Let us confess that we need him every hour. We began this morning by talking about baby monkeys that have to hold fast to their mothers for the sake of their very lives. Whether you and I realize it or not, we are in a same predicament. We must hold fast to our faithful Savior. Our lives are at stake. Some of you this morning know this all too well. You are weary from holding fast. And so may I encourage you to keep holding. Your covenant Lord is also holding you as you are holding him. But if you are here this morning holding fast to something else, may I urge you and plead with you to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. You will find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And as I just reminded those who are in him, you will find that he is holding you even as you hold to him. So for those of us who know Christ, may we be dependent upon him today as if it were the very first day where he breathed life into us. May we never lose sight of our need for him or even underestimate the folly and the danger of our own pride. The Lord made you to depend upon him, so hold fast to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we need you. We are a needy people. God, we are a weak people, and yet, ironically, we are a proud people. God, would you forgive us of our pride? Would you draw us to yourself? May we see that we are in desperate need of you, and may we see that you have faithfully provided for us in the person and work of your Son. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen. If you would, please stand and grab your hymnal. Uh, We will sing a song in response, uh, Rock of Ages, on page 499.